Long ago, when I was a young man, my father said to me, Norman, you like to write stories. And I said, yes, I do. Then he said, someday, when you're ready, you might tell our family story. Only then will you understand what happened and why. My father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman. There is one yonder. And though it is true that one day a week was given over wholly to religion, even then he told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen. And we were left to assume, as my younger brother Paul and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. The poor without Christ are of all men the most miserable. But the poor with Christ are princes and kings of the earth. In the afternoon, we would walk with him while he unwound between services. He almost always chose a path along the big Blackfoot, which we considered our family river. And it was there he felt his soul restored and his imagination stirred. Long ago, rain fell on mud and became rock. But even before that, beneath the rocks are the words of God. Listen. And if Paul and I listened very carefully all our lives, we might hear those words. Even so, Paul and I probably received as many hours of instruction in fly fishing as we did in all other spiritual matters. As a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a mess, and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Ten. To him, all good things, Ten. trout as well as eternal salvation, come by grace, and grace comes by art, and art does not come easy. Happy Father's Day. I'll add my happy Father's Day to those you've already heard in the announcements. Um, to all of the dads, we have a lot of great dads in this church family, and we honor you and we celebrate you. You're absolutely amazing. And um, we also have our, our hearts wide open, and we're here to walk alongside of any of you who this is a very difficult day. Uh, it might be because this is the first Father's Day that you're facing and trying to figure out how to navigate after your father has died. And so you're mourning and you're grieving and you've come to the right place. You've come to a healing place. Or, or maybe you're in a situation where you have a father who um, didn't come through, who, who uh, abandoned you or wasn't there for you or hurt you in some way. And worst of all, maybe even abused you. You're in a healing place. You're in a good place. And here's what I want to say right up front. Not to diminish those things or to minimize them at all, the struggles. Because you just heard it said in, in that line from A River Runs Through It which is written by Norman McLean, who's the older son in the story. He's writing about his family. His father said to him, you heard that at the beginning of the clip, you like to write stories, right, Norman? And Norman says, yes, I do. And his father says, someday you should write our family story because only then will you be able to make sense of it, about what happened and, more importantly, why. And so what Norman does is he embarks on this journey. He... he um, he is a gifted writer, and he was an English professor in real life at the University of Chicago, one of the nation's elite schools. 
for over 40 years. Norman McLean, Professor McLean at the University of Chicago. Maybe some of you had him if that was your school. But it wasn't until he was 74 years old after he retired that he wrote A River Runs Through It, which is, of course, the basis for this Robert Redford movie. He didn't write the story because he wasn't ready for it. He didn't publish any books or novels until he was 74 years old. This was his first one. And in the midst of that story that he wrote, this novel, he talks about his father, the Reverend John McLean. He says, to him, to my dad, all good things, trout, as well as eternal salvation, come by grace. And grace comes by art. And art does not come easy. And this is true. Have you ever noticed there's no perfect art? There's no perfect painting, no perfect song. No, no, it's, it's, there's some that's glorious. It's stunning and inspiring. Absolutely beautiful. But perfection isn't something that we can do. Only God can. And so let me ask you again, if, if, if grace is the source for art, and art doesn't come easy, it doesn't come easy because it's human, it, it, our art that is produced. But how great thou art, God. How great the wonder and the glory of your creation that Reverend McLean and his two sons would, would bask in the glow of and, and, and soak up. And, and, and their dad, the pastor, would say, the, the river runs through it and the water runs over the rocks and underneath the rocks, how poetic is this? Underneath the rocks are the words of God. And if you listen, boys, this is good fathering. If you listen, boys, you can almost hear it. You can hear the timeless truth of God's word. The scriptures that declare the flower, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's steadfast and true. God's mercy endures forever. Can you hear about this mercy, about this amazing grace? Because nothing less will do. Not the grace that we can muster up on our own just because we try to be good enough people, but it starts from a much deeper source, a much deeper source of, of refreshing waters that, that, that rain down from heaven on this earth and set things right for us. Reverend McLean, I'm sure, got this from... John chapter 1 verse 16 where God's word says from God's fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's Father's Day so today's the day for us to talk about the importance of grace and finding this grace in your own story. The story that God's writing about you because the reality is have you realized this yet? That the good moments of life, those glorious moments, do you know literally the word glory in the Bible, the Greek word is doxa, from which we get doxology? The doxa of God is heaven breaking through into this world, glimpses of God's will being done. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us your glory, God. Give us a glimpse. Give us that day when, when we get to be out in the midst of your creation. Give us that perfect day when we're with family. Give us your glory. Give us a reminder of the wonder of your creation. Give us a reminder of the power of your love and, and the love we get to share with friends and, and family, the, the people that you've put around us. Doxa, grace upon grace. But it doesn't last. In A River Runs Through It, Norman McLean writes that. He says, I knew just as surely after we had one of those glorious walks with our dad uh, along the Blackfoot River, which is near Missoula, Montana, if you're familiar with that part of the country, it's, it's glorious, it's beautiful. But after one of those fishing uh, uh, outings that we had, father and two sons, it was glorious, and I was soaking it up. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if this could last forever? But I knew just as surely, just as clearly, but the moment could not last. 
The moment could not last. And that's the harsh reality living in an upside down world, a fallen world. That those holy moments, and man, the older I get, and I hear people say this all the time, and I heard them say it when I was younger too, but it's so true and it's such a bummer. It just keeps accelerating, life does. It just keeps going faster and faster. And you look back and you think, my goodness, where did the last three decades go? Where did the, because I'm 30 years old now. I mean, it's just amazing how quick that happened. And God gives us glimpses of heaven along the way. And they're glorious by his amazing grace. Those are great. But they don't last, not in a fallen world. They will last. That's how good heaven is. The dokes of the glory doesn't disappear. You just stay in it. It just remains. Until then, we get glimpses. We get glimpses of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want more of that heaven. Bring your heaven. But life gets tough. You don't need me to tell you this. You know this individually, we know this collectively, we know what we're up against, so I'm calling this sermon Finding Heroes in Hard Times on Father's Day. Looking for those fatherly figures in our lives, those influences, those those people who bring more glimpses of God's glory to us, who lead us to these places. And again, if, if you have a strained relationship with your father, living or dead, that's difficult. And, and I, so I say that with with all sorts of, um, with all sorts of, uh, of, of, of concern for what you feel and what you're going through. But God's glory still breaks through, and I want to say this right up front. You have a good father. I'm not talking about your human father. We all have a good father. We have a great father. We have a perfect father. And Jesus tells a story about it. What's your story? Here's a picture of Norman MacLean, the actual author of A River Runs Through It, that became this movie that won all these awards. This book that he wrote, this novel, A River Runs Through It and Other Stories, uh, is considered a 20th century masterpiece. The book's even better than the movie. You should check it out. And he writes about the, the, the reflecting on his family and his life. And here he is, pictured on a boat on Seely Lake where he and his brother, his younger brother Paul, the rebellious one, he was the faithful one, the obedient one, but his younger brother chased the pleasures of life and ended up getting killed for it. But along the way, and that's what he has to sort out, what happened and why, along the way, Norman discovers the power of glory, of heaven on earth, of God's amazing grace. This is the cabin that Norman and his brother Paul and their father, the Reverend McLean, built. It's an actual cabin. It's actually there on Seely Lake, which isn't the most beautiful lake in Montana. And Montana doesn't have the most beautiful lakes in the country. It's got some pretty sweet rivers and some pretty nice mountains. What's your story? As you think about and reflect, maybe you've seen the movie, maybe you've read the book, but even if you haven't done either one of those, I want you to think about your own story. So here's part of my story, just a Kind of a glimpse of it. That's myself and my two brothers when we were camping, growing up in Montana, three sons of a pastor. You can't make this stuff up. The parallels between a river runs through it and my childhood are uncanny. I'm the cute one, by the way, if you're wondering. (laughs) I'm the one in the middle holding the whole family together, which in some cases I feel like I'm still doing. And there we are with mom and dad and some of the grandparents and our little humble camper where we would go over and over again when my dad was a Lutheran pastor in Montana, we would go to a campground at a place called Seely Lake. You can't make this stuff up. 
That was our go-to. We were probably a mile away from the cabin where Norman McLean and his brother built with their father, the Reverend McLean, and how they put this whole thing together. I had no idea because the book hadn't been written at the time, the movie hadn't been made at the time, but we were living parallel lives in a certain way. That's my story. I don't want to get too focused on my story. That's mine. It's obviously what God's writing for in my spirit, in my heart, my soul, and and the pathway for me. But I tell you that so that you think about your own story. What's your story here in about the middle of June 2022, wherever you are, wherever you're tuning in all all over the world right now? What's your story? What's the story God's writing in your heart? And how much space do you give in that novel of your life to let God write it? Or are you trying to write it yourself? Which sometimes trips us up because we chase after the wind of this world. Have you learned yet? Have you discovered the timeless truth of the power of God's amazing grace that we can achieve greatness in this world? We can capture glimpses of heaven for a while. You can can be so good at what you do and it's really impressive. It truly is. We don't have to minimize these things. That's worth noting. That's worth celebrating. You could be so good at what you do that you're you're, you're the top of your company. You're, You're earning incredible amounts of money and you're rich. You're wealthy. Or you could be super powerful. Or you could be famous. You could have more social media followers than anybody or YouTube famous or TikTok famous or or whatever the goal is. You could be beautiful. I mean, just physically attractive and unbelievably stunningly beautiful. You, You could have any of these things, but have you learned yet that you're not gonna get good at life until you get good at grace? Have you discovered this yet? That you could be really good at all sorts of things that the world says you gotta have in order to have a full and an abundant life. But until you get good at grace, you won't get good at life. And by good at grace, I mean you believe in it and you receive it. Not just expecting grace from everybody else. Fallen sinful human beings in a fallen world may give it to you sometimes and sometimes they may not. You may get what you've deserved, but you may not get what you've deserved. I'm talking about a deeper source, a deeper river, the timeless truth of God's word underneath those rocks that says my grace is sufficient for you, that you are saved by my grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing lest any of us should boast, but it is a free gift from God. Do you believe in this grace and do you receive it? Do you have room to receive this grace in your busy life? Actually, not just to see it as a tack on that you Velcro on to the rest of the important things you're doing, but the very core, the very foundation upon which the river runs through your life. What's your story? Because if you want to get good at life, if you want to find the abundance of life this side of heaven, you're going to have to get good at grace. You're going to have to learn to receive it. And it's also really helpful to give it. You can take the most grand vacation. You can discover the most glorious view that won't last. You can can achieve the highest academic degree that you earn. You, You can go after all these things, but you won't find peace and contentment in life until you find grace, until you discover the the power of this foundational truth, this timeless truth. And you know what? Here's the thing, we don't get to vote on this. This is how our creator created it. This is how he made it to be. 
This is how he ordered our world, and we're just living in it. We don't control it. I, I know we try, but that's original sin. Us refusing to accept our condition as being under God, we want to be as God. What's your story? Our Bible reading for today, Luke 15, starts like this. Jesus told a story. Jesus told the the people who were in the crowd this story. He says, a father, a man, had two sons. Kind of like a river runs through it. The older son was faithful and obedient. The younger son was rebellious. Just like Norman and Paul in this movie, in this novel, in this true life story. What's your story? And I want you to find yourself in this story that Jesus tells. Why does Jesus tell this story? Because he's getting pushed around. Although he's not really getting pushed around. They're trying to push him around. The Pharisees and teachers of religious law are complaining to Jesus that he's associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Do you notice Jesus doesn't deny it? Do you notice Jesus doesn't say, well, they're not that bad. They're pretty good people. They do some good things. Do you know what Jesus does? He tells a story as he was fond of doing when he would get pushed around by the religious establishment. Instead of getting in a point-by-point debate that can spiral out of control, Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story about your complaints. A shepherd had 100 sheep, and 99 of them were found and were doing fine, but one of them was lost. So that good shepherd, because he was good, went after the lost one. And everybody who's listening is like, yeah, that's what good shepherds do. The 99 are okay, so you go after the lost one. Well, that's Christianity, Jesus is teaching. That's the way it's supposed to be for Christians. That you would care more about the one lost one than the 99 who are found, which is a little bit offensive, if we're going to be honest. Like, what about us? What about the believers? What about the people who are already there? Isn't that what church is supposed to be all about? Isn't it about us getting holier and more pure and growing deeper and deeper in our faith? Yes, it is. It absolutely is. It is not to minimize that at all. That's a big part of it, but it isn't the main part of it. Not if you take this story seriously. Why do you hang around so much with the darkness when you're supposed to be the light? Isn't the light only supposed to hang out with the light? You know, Jesus, the wisdom of the world says, if you hang out with sinners, you're endorsing their behavior. If you go speak with their groups, if you go talk to them, you're endorsing their behavior. Do you know what that is? That's worldly logic. It isn't biblical. Biblical wisdom says you go. You go and you bring the light to the dark places. You don't shun them. You don't dismiss them. You don't say they're out and I'm in. That's self-righteousness. And that's the problem when good religion goes to bad religion. It slips down that slope and suddenly Christianity becomes about people who belong here in our church. People who are good enough to hang out with us. People who are worthy to be in our our group, our Bible study, our little house church, our our little gathering. People who are righteous enough. Because, you know, we went to this other church for a while and it wasn't perfect. And so now we need to find the perfect one. And that's why we came to Lutheran Church of Hope. Bad move, all right? (laughs) You did not find a perfect church. And if you're waiting for us to show our imperfections before you leave this one to go to another one... You're the person Jesus is talking about. You have lost your way. You're looking for something that doesn't exist this side of heaven. Oh, we get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of getting it just right. 
the way God would have us do it all the time. And we strive at the very core of who we are to be as faithful as we can to God's word. And we will do that imperfectly. And so will every other church. And so will every other group. And so will every other Bible study. And so will every other ministry. So let's go back to grace. Jesus says, if you didn't get it, let me tell you a second story. In fact, he's going to tell three stories making the same point. He says, a woman lost a coin. You ever lose your phone? And you turn the whole house over trying to find it? And you go on Find My Friends, and you click on there, and you're like, well, it's here somewhere, but I can't find it anywhere. And so you just, you look, and you look, and you look, and you, it, under the couches, between the cushions, in the car, did you check the car? Yes, I checked the car. Did you look under the, yes, I looked under the seats. And then you find it. And where was it? Well, it's in the slot where it's supposed to be, where it's always supposed to be, but you didn't look there because you thought it wasn't there. And so you find it, and you, if it's ever happened to you, how do you feel in that moment? Just for a, it's, it's the glory of heaven breaking through, isn't it? it? It's like a glimpse. It's like this moment of, oh, hallelujah. Let the, let, the, let the skies open up and the angels descend and sing a heavenly chorus. I have found my phone. And then you look at what's on your phone and like, it didn't last. Now I'm bummed again. But for that moment, it's glorious. Jesus says that's how it is. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, when the woman finds her lost coin, that's how heaven sees it. When somebody who's lost from God gets found, somebody who's dead in their sin is resurrected to a new life because somebody in the church cared enough to bring God's amazing grace to that person instead of just being focused on their holy huddle. This is what Christianity is supposed to be, Jesus is saying. And if you didn't get it in the first two stories, let me tell the third one, the more famous one. A man had two sons. It's the parable of the prodigal son. A man had two sons, and the younger son, the rebellious one, looks a lot like Brad Pitt. (laughs) The younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. I highlighted younger son because I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is saying as he tells this story about what the people in this story, the characters in this story are seeing about their relationship with one another. He went off and he did this and he lost it all. He ended up uh, losing his money and gambling debts and same story as Paul and a river runs through it. He gets a job uh, pursuing the pleasures of life. He realizes the dead end of that. He forgot that in his pursuit of riches and power and beauty and and advanced degrees and, and, and gambling and drinking and bar fights and womanizing and all the things that he pursued, that the world told him and lied to him that if he could get those things, he'd be happy. He realized it was all a futile pursuit. And he's out feeding the pigs for a pig farmer and he realizes The food I'm giving to the pigs is better than what I eat. And you know what? It's better than what the people who work in my father's household eat. Because they're always well fed and they always have more than they need. And that's the moment of repentance for him. He changed the way he thinks. He says, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go home. Although I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore, I'll tell him, 
I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. He starts practicing his, practicing his speech. Do you ever have a speech that's so important to you, you start practicing it as you go? I do that every Saturday around 3 o'clock <laughs> when I'm preaching. So he's rehearsing this. Father, I've sinned against heaven. Yes, you have. Heaven's will is not for you to pursue the false idols you've been pursuing that hurt you, hurt people around you, break up relationships, squash your dreams. It looks so good when you start running after it. And then the reality breaks through. I've sinned against heaven. Yes, you have. And I've sinned against you, Father. Yes, you have. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. If there is no grace, that's true. And so he's going to give this speech of confession, of repentance to his father. But here's the best part of the story. The father sees his younger rebellious son coming and he runs to his son before he hears the speech, before he hears the confession, before his son can give the whole thing and say, I'll just be a servant in your house. I'm not worthy to be your son. He's not even listening. That's clear in the original Greek of Luke 15. The father will have none of it because he knows his son has already beat himself up enough. Uh, up enough that's good parenting there is a time when a father needs to discipline there's a time a lot of times when a father needs to teach there's a time that's what discipline means it means to teach to teach children here's where the boundaries are here's why you can't do this and you can't do this grace is not saying whatever you do it's all good grace is saying you already know it's bad I can see that I sense that in my heart I know that you don't need me to pile on right now I know what you need from me is grace to be amazing. So he runs to his son. He embraces his son. He puts a ring on his son. He puts a robe symbolizing royalty around his son. He tells his staff, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party here like we've never had before. 2000, oops, out of time. We're going to party like it's 1999. That wasn't in my outline, I just decided to say it. (laughs) Welcome home. Somebody who's hearing my voice right now needed to hear this part. You're not sure you're worthy. You're not sure you belong at church. And do you know why you're not sure? Because the Bible says you don't belong here? Nope. Because church people have told you. Self-righteous Christians have told you, you don't really belong in a church. You don't really belong in God's house. You're not good enough to darken these doors. Do you know what kind of a church says welcome home to you? This one, Lutheran Church of Hope, and a lot of other ones around this town too. You are welcome here. Welcome home. You've come to the right place. We don't think it's an accident you're here today. We've been praying for you. Those of you who know you're lost from God, those of you who know you've wandered off from God, you are home. Welcome home. You've come to a place where there is a God who wants to meet you here and tell you how much he loves you. You already know what you've done hasn't been helpful. You already know that it was wrong. You don't need us to pile on on that. What you need is grace, because grace is going to lead to the correction of behavior anyway. Nothing less will do. He ran to his son because he knew it's exactly what his son needed. And as Jesus continues to tell this story to the self-righteous religious people, remember who his audience is, as he continues to tell this story, it becomes very clear the father in this story is God. There's your good father. 
Oh, but there's one more part of the story. The older son doesn't look too happy, does he? What about me? Where's my party? I've always been obedient. I've been here the whole time. And so the father says, or the son says to the father, you know, this son of yours, notice he doesn't even call him his brother. He's not my brother. But this son of yours, and you shouldn't even call him your son, but this so-called son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, and you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. How is that fair? A good father knows when to offer a word of grace and when to offer a word of correction and discipline. And please notice, God gives grace to the immoral sinner and discipline to the self-righteous religious one. Son, dear son, you're still my dear son too. Your self-righteousness does not disqualify you from being a part of my home. You're welcome here too. <laughs> For all of you who are self-righteous, you've come to the right place. Welcome home. My dear son, you have always stayed by me, and so everything I have is yours. You've always had the better part. But we had to celebrate, the father goes on to say, this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. The coin that was lost has been found. The sheep that was lost has been found. The son who was lost has been found. And there is no greater cause for celebration in the kingdom of heaven than when God sees that happen on earth. There's a party, Jesus is saying. That's why I hang out. That's why I bring God's grace into dark places. I'm not endorsing the behavior. I'm bringing God's life-changing transformational grace. I'm carrying out the mission of the church. But still, there's a part of us. If we're going to be honest, we say, yeah, but it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to the older son. I remember when I was in college, I um, went to Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, but I lived in Chicago, so it was a long drive, and this is back when the speed limit was 55. Remember that? <laughs> Wild. So it was a 12-hour drive from the north side of the city of Chicago where we lived to Moorhead, Minnesota, across the Red River from Fargo, where I attended Hope Lutheran Church, Jeremy's dad's church, who's on our staff now. Again, small world, right? So I'm driving home my freshman year, my first year, and it's 12 hours, so it's not like you're going home every weekend. It was Thanksgiving, so it was my first trip home. After being in college for three months or so, I come home, I pull into the driveway, and there's a new car. I mean, it's not a good car, but it's a used car. There's a new car in the driveway, and I'm like, who's visiting? Because I'm driving a Plymouth Horizon <laughs> that my dad bought for about $250. And he says, here you go, son. Knock yourself out. This Plymouth Horizon is cousin of Dodge Omni, if you had one of those, too. It is one of the worst cars ever manufactured on planet Earth. You know how I said about glimpses of There are no glimpses of heaven in this car. None whatsoever. No glory in this car at all. You know how some seats back then had vinyl, like really cheap vinyl? This was a step below whatever that vinyl was. It was just awful. It had a stereo that didn't work. It had an air conditioner that didn't work. It had a heater that only worked half the time. It had an engine that was not reliable. I ended up getting towed on freeways back and forth to college many times in this stinking car. 
it was junk. It had rust on top of the rust. It just, it was a, it was a health hazard. So I'm driving this thing home. And it, it, by the way, it got totaled one night. My dad's like, well, I know a guy. He'll fix it up. <laughs> it didn't drive straight. I bring the car home. And there's an there's a Oldsmobile 88 Royale whatever, Delta, whatever it's called. And I get inside and I find out it's my little brother's car. He goes, you want to go for a ride? It's pretty sweet. I'll bet it is. It seats about 32. Because it's got the bench in the front and the bench in the back and the trunk could seat 15. It's got the, it's got the lure seats, only the best. It's got a stereo that works, an air conditioner that just blows ice out of the vents. And so I went to my dad. What's up with that? How can that be fair? My dad said, well, we love him more than you. <laughs> he was kidding, I think. But then he said this. That's my dad, by the way. <laughs> I'm so glad he taught me this. This is good fathering, because I was getting a little self-righteous. I was like, pity party. Oh, it's not fair. I was right. It isn't fair. But instead of my dad pretending it's fair, he said, get over it. Life is tough, but it's way too short for pity parties, Mike, and feeling sorry for yourself. If I had a nickel for every time he told me that, I'd have at least, what, $12? But if you do the math, that's a lot of nickels. <laughs> my dad said this to my brothers and me over and over and over again. If you want to, you can always find something to be upset about in this fallen world where we only get glimpses of heaven. It is not hard. You can find somebody who offends you. You can find somebody who does you wrong. You can find something that's off in the world that you get all upset about and make it the main thing. Or you could get off your pity pot, as my dad would say, and start living again. Come join the party, as Jesus tells the story. The father says to the older brother, why don't you just enjoy your brother's car? Come and ride, because he was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Get over yourself. Start, stop expecting this world to be perfect. This world that is absolutely dependent on God's amazing grace. And find some joy again and find some peace again. Do you remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon? No matter how rich you are, no matter how glorious the view, no matter how famous, you're not going to get good at life till you get good at grace. Because you'll always find something to be upset about. You'll always find something that's off, that isn't right, that's wrong. And if that's what you major in your whole life, what are you going to think about your life when it's all said and done? As you look back on it. Here's all the things that I did. I was really offended a lot with a fallen, imperfect world, expecting the world to be something they don't have the potential to be. I was really upset with a lot of people, and I made sure everybody knew it, which made me feel kind of powerful once in a while, and it felt like a rush, kind of good once in a while, but it never lasted, and then I just got cynical. And then I just kind of walked with this burden all the time, and I was grumpy and grumbling 
And then I needed to find other religious people who were just like me until they offended me, and then I had to go find a new group. And that's who Jesus is talking to because he loves you. If this is your temptation, he loves you. Just like he loved the older son in this story, just like my dad loved me. Come join the party, Mike. The Greek word for party here in this story, when the father says to the older son, the party's going to begin, let's go. It's the same root word as euphoria, euphanestai. It means party. But you'd be wrong if you thought it's like, here, come find the party. You've got to find the party. That's the only way you can have fun. You've got you to find the next party. No, literally, that Greek word means you are carrying the joy of the Lord in your soul because you have God's amazing grace. And that grace gives you a confidence that there's nothing that's unfair in this world. The stuff that people do to you, the stuff that you do to yourself that makes life tough this side of heaven, here comes your heavenly father. And he says, you don't need to find the party, you are the party. You've got it because you figured out my grace. You received my grace. So wherever you go, it's a party. And I don't mean put the lampshade on your head and be goofy. I'm talking about you walk with grace for the world around you, for people around you, for all the imperfect people around you, because they all are. And it doesn't mean there isn't a time for corrective discipline and, and, and saying, hey, I think there's a better way, but you speak that truth in love with grace and the intent not being to crush and guilt and shame the other person, but the intent being to transform that person and help them find a whole new glorious life. This is the way of Jesus. You don't have to find the party, Christian. You are the party. So welcome home. Be who God has created you to be. You know the thing about my dad that I remember the most now, 18 years after he died? Is he taught me grace. He was bigger than life. Huge, colorful personality. When he was in a room, you knew it loud. You think I'm loud? Woo! Creative, brilliant, street smart, wise guy. Understood people, understood their hearts, could look straight into their souls. But you wouldn't notice it at first because he was so happy-go-lucky. He didn't have a charmed life. He had issues with his own father, had some daddy issues he had to work out and make peace with. He, he had some, a lot of people do him wrong along the way. He could have been bitter. He could have been cynical. But all he had for the world around him was grace. Oh, he had his moments. He wasn't perfect. But what I learned from him was grace. And isn't it interesting that whenever I think about my dad today, I think of grace. Man, I'm so thankful that he taught me that. And your heavenly father's trying to teach you and me that today in this story. A man, a father had two sons. You won't get good at life until you get really good at grace. Believe it, receive it, and give it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand up and together we'll sing out this song.